Father, we just ask that you bless this time that uh, we study through this book. And we ask that you just give us wisdom and discernment and just guide our understanding into your means of grace and your plans for our communal uh, congregation and fellowship. Lord, we just seek to give you all the glory in our lives and all the honor with our word and our mind. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for those of you who wondered where Linda and I come from, uh, here's a perfect example. <laughs> Just, anyway, quite a, quite a culture shock to come to a place where there's no mountains. But anyway, today uh, we're going through chapter four, the next big thing, in uh, Horton's book, Ordinary. And... Uh, before I jump right into the chapter, I want to take a few minutes and uh, look at a few things, talk about a couple things that I think will help us get a better understanding of what is causing or influencing uh, some of the things that Horton discusses in this chapter. So I want to take a minute and look at this graphic, the shape. Though we don't know what it represents, we can determine some characteristics. Uh, it's pretty much steady state vertically, and then all of a sudden there's a substantial blossoming out. Uh, it, no, it's not a golf tee. And as uh, Linda said, uh, it is not a funnel either. What this is trying to represent is this new phenomenon called the exponential growth of human knowledge. Uh, this graphic is not mathematically correct. If it was, that top portion would be just astronomically wide. I don't know if you can read here, but we're starting off pointing out the, you know, like right in here is the first powered flight, and then the next right here is landing on the moon. And right after it is the computer age. So you can see that this tremendous change has all just happened very recently. Uh, in the 1970s, Buckminster Fuller actually created what I can find as the first knowledge doubling curve. He was the first one to address this phenomenon. He noticed that until 1900, uh, human knowledge was doubling about every century. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. It's now projected that by 2020, knowledge will be doubling every 18 months and that doubling period is going to shorten and shorten. And from some fields of uh, study or knowledge, the doubling period is already much shorter down into less than, a, less than a year. So what has happened, though, is that we've transitioned from a linear growth uh, of human knowledge throughout history uh, to this new phenomena of exponential growth. And the purpose of pointing this out is not to really focus on the accumulated knowledge, but try to move us to recognize that there are equally profound social and cultural changes accompanying the exponential growth in knowledge. And there are probably subtle personal changes happening to us as well because of us experiencing this exponential growth in knowledge. We need to recognize there's no historical precedent for this. We are unique in human history as far as this occurring. 
So we can't look back and see how this problem was encountered in the past. What mistakes did they make? What problems did they realize? How did they resolve it? We're doing this all for the first time. I think, interestingly, and I'm not going to go into this too much, but if we were to try and graph the recent changes to the church in the last few hundred years, such as the uh, explosive growth of non-denominational churches, the uh, rise of liberalism and doctrinal exegesis and pastoral preaching, uh, the pretty wholesale abandonment of historic creeds and confessions, and the apparent illiteracy and untaught condition of a lot of church attendees, if we tried to graph all those, it would really start to look like the same exponential knowledge curve. So you see these things are coinciding. They're happening at the same time. There's probably a cause and effect. A phrase that we're probably hearing a lot lately is new normal. That should tell you right there that there is a lot of change going on. So the new normal of constant rapid change. Today, rapid growth in knowledge, rapid advances in technology, and permutations in cultural norms are anticipated and even expected by the general population. So the point here is to try and understand that these advances, these changes, have a tendency to create a societal mindset that, without even realizing it, as we go through our daily lives, is expecting change, anticipating things to be different from month to month, year to year. Could it be that we have been unconsciously conditioned to anticipate and realize change in every aspect of our lives. Electronic devices, home, I don't need to go on. And this subliminal expectation for change, can it even find its way into the church? So what might our reactions be then when expectations of change and advancement are not realized. What's going to happen when someone who's lived their life expecting these changes, realizing these changes, encounters something unchanging? Might they have feelings of frustration, disillusionment, even resentment? Finally, what this pressure to realize change has produced is the cult of the next big thing. And this is the title of Horton's chapter. And we see the cult members here lined up in front of the Apple store. And the old-timer guard is just kind of laughing to himself, knowing that by the time they open the doors, it's already going to be out of date. So already social philosophers are beginning to question whether, as a culture, are we mature enough to handle the huge increases in knowledge and technology. So without debating the pros and cons of the changes that have impacted our societies, we should be asking ourselves, 
Are there ways this new norm of constant rapid change is shaping our expectations? And if this is occurring to us, how is it affecting our communal life in the church? Horton looks at this phenomena through five different lenses in this chapter. The next big thing, some of which I've already begun to identify with these first few slides. He looks at the phenomena of the next big thing itself. He asks the question, what happens when the next big thing survives beyond its initial novelty period? We look at revival versus revivalism. We'll look at an example of long-term evangelism. And then finally, we'll look at what modes of thinking might we be bringing into the church. So the cult of the next big thing. The first thing Horton points out is that cultural rebellion is no longer a threat to the system. It is the system. Since the 60s, cultural rebellion in some forms, such as the draft, the war, drugs, sex, etc., has been virtually continuous. It's reached a point where to even sell a product, the advertisers must proclaim that the product is revolutionary or even subversive. Horton examples advertising like this referring to a brand of tennis shoe that was presented to the public as being subversive, a subversive running shoe. The implication is that for contemporary society, if something is not perceived as having a revolutionary or subversive aspect to it, then it runs the risk of being seen as old, boring, or consequently even unnecessary. And marketers and advertising people who make a career out of this understand that's how we need to see things. Okay, you just can't build ingeniously on the wisdom of the past. You have to reinvent it. Horton points out that enamored of its reported amazingness, each generation razzes the empire to its foundation and starts over until the next generation come along and does the same thing. So the question then comes, are we seeing a mindset where each new generation is seeing little to no value for the foundation laid by the previous generation. Most definitely, each generation sees the failures of the preceding generation to deal with significant problems as their new battle cries. We see this in the news every day with the youth. Climate change this weekend, gun control, personal identity rights, etc., But Horton puts forth the, pos- the position that perpetual reinvention dooms cultures and churches to become but passing shadows of momentary glamour of each new movement. And they have few lasting legacies beyond the trivial. So a false assumption then from the youth and society in general, could be that because the church has not successfully solved the ills of the world, it must be ineffectual and irrelevant. The assumption is that the mission of the church, the gospel, 
is to save the culture rather than save the individual. And if there's a perception that the church should be saving the culture, then what types of pressure for change might be assaulting the church? You should note that J. Gresham Machen warned of this and advised against trying to legislate Christian morality in the popular culture. And he was pretty resoundly shouted down because of that position. And I think it's come around to prove that that was probably a wise position. Okay, next. Perpetual shock is the new normal in the church as well. It seems that Jesus needs rebranding every couple of decades. Uh, The rhetoric for radical change in the churches can often be recognized by the lingo such as countercultural, alternative, and extreme. Same types of lingo we might hear in uh, world movements. And while many advocating radical change will invoke the names of the reformers, they fail to recognize that the reformers sought to purge out error and sin from the church. Their intent was never to reinvent, reboot, or start over. For that level of enthusiasm, reinventing, rebooting, and starting over, you have to be in a state of perpetual innovation. And modern history gives us a lot of reasons to believe that evangelical Protestantism today is being shaped by the cult of perpetual novelty. And I refer back to that graph I showed earlier about the history of the church and the changes, mimicking the changes in society. C.S. Lewis, in his Screwtape letters, um, has Screwtape telling his apprentice that the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we've produced in the human heart. The discussion follows about fashion, novelty, and change will certainly produce an insatiable desire for, ironically, more of the same. And this thirst for change actually becomes the paradox, same as the paradox for hedonism, never being satisfied. While our culture celebrates the next big thing, Scripture, however, speaks of an intergenerational covenant of grace. In the world, however, movements are largely youth-driven, whereas institutions are usually run by elders. So how do we reconcile this gap? The challenge, especially in the church where we are drawn together in Christ from different ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, and generations is to, as Ephesians 4.3 says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to remember to let the king run his kingdom, follow his instructions, and become disciples as well as make them. So what is the answer in a world that expects change? We need to be open to the never-changing, yet always new power of God's word as our only norm for faith and practice. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. 
The next big thing is a tradition. So this is the one where we look at uh, what happens when a big next big thing actually manages to survive. And one of the prominent, and we mentioned this already, Christian traditions today is non-denominational evangelicalism. Most non-denominational churches today, while not subscribing to creeds and confessions, are still committed to orthodox doctrines. Most provide members with a basic familiarity of the Bible, and most provide members with a living knowledge of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They have become a tradition themselves that has a distinctly American revivalism roots, which we'll discuss shortly. However, it's important to recognize that we never come to the Bible as the first Christians, but always as those who have been inducted into a certain set of expectations about what we will find in Scripture. A good example of this is a new believer reading through the Bible is going to find it hard to recognize or discern the doctrine of the Trinity. However, this is part of a rich inheritance uh, in the communion of saints from the past and the present. Okay, for many, authority has shifted from the external word commonly heard, embraced, and lived to the individual experience. And here are some results of that thinking. The visible church is false. The invisible church of the truly born again and spirit-filled must reinvent the church of Acts. This can be dramatically seen in the home church movement, which maintains that church buildings ordained pastors and a corresponding laity are constructs of the 4th century conversion of Constantine and the Roman Empire. And this is really going on. I actually had a neighbor in Big Bear before we moved here give me a book, ask me, what did I think of this? And it was all about this home church movement. And my response was, so I guess the Holy Spirit was very ineffectual for Uh, 1900 years and that kind of sent them away thinking you know but that stuff is happening Uh, it's not the outer word and sacraments that matter but the inner voice of the spirit and inner washing and presence of Jesus apart from the water bread and wine another uh, example of this individual experience can be found in John Smythe, who was the progenitor of the Baptist denomination. A next big thing that survived and became a tradition. Those who are born again should no longer need means of grace. This is a quote. Since the persons of the Godhead are better than all scripture or creatures whatsoever. Another uh, John Smythe exclamation was that prayer, singing, and preaching had to be completely spontaneous. He went so far with this mentality that he would not allow the reading of the Bible during worship since he regarded translations as less than the direct word of God. 
Now, that's all changed, but that was happening. And that's the, uh, almost the foundation for this, what we see today, where experience is so vitally important. Okay, and yet, ultimately, non-denominational movements soon become denominations, and radical innovations soon become unquestioned traditions. We can see these non-denominational movements that become denominations in Baptist, Foursquare, Assembly of God. And the radical innovations that have become traditions, believers' baptisms, speaking in tongues, and being slain in the Spirit are examples, and there's many more. Okay, longing for revival. Modern American culture, which is the cult of celebrity, youthfulness, and innovation, Horton maintains, was actually built on the sawdust trail of the revivalist. In a society before TV, radio, revivals were not just influenced by culture, they were the pop culture. Imagine thousands of towns didn't even have maybe a newspaper, let alone a telephone or TV or anything. Even before traveling circuses, actually. And the only thing that was coming to town were revivalists. That was the big event, the pop culture. There are two ways to understand a revival, a surprising work of God or a staged work of man. A surprising work of God can be seen in the Great Awakening of the 1730s and 40s, where gifted speakers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, by their preaching of the word, saw audiences brought to a conviction of their sinfulness and a realization of their need for salvation. On a grand scale, people were moved to introspection and committed to a new standard of individual piety and religious devotion. However, revival by a staged work of man is actually a technological approach to religion where the presentation and emotions of the crowd can be manipulated with predictable results. And a classic example of that is Charles Finney. These are some quotes and examples by Finney. A revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is simply the philosophical result of the right use of means like any other effect. And Finney defined his new measures as inducements sufficient to convert sinners with. I don't know how much credit Finney actually would attribute to the Holy Spirit in the regenerating of the hearts of men. He felt he had it to a science. Constant pressure was placed on the ingenuity of the evangelist to keep up the emotional pressure on the audience. Finney even warned, a revival will decline and cease unless Christians are frequently re converted so you see this focus and play on the emotionality individually the routinization of conversion procedures like those of the factories in the industrial revolution could be calculated 
measured, and reproduced. This is what happened in Anglo-American revivalism. Finney himself wondered if this endless craving for ever greater experience might lead to spiritual exhaustion. And in fact, his worries were justified. The area where Finney's revivals were especially dominant is now referred to by historians as the burned-over district. It's a seedbed of both disillusionment, which we talked about before, and the proliferation of esoteric sex. The vicious cycle of evangelical revivalism is a pendulum swinging between enthusiasm and disillusionment. Rather than steady maturity in Christ, through participation in the ordinary life of the covenant community. Revivalism seems to only focus on verse 19 of Matthew 28. It seems to sidestep verse 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, and taking the time and investing yourself, my words, right, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Horton says, driven to and fro with every wind of doctrine and often no doctrine at all, those reared in evangelicalism become accustomed to hype and cataclysmic events and intense spiritual experience that nevertheless wear, wear off. I actually have a quote here, and I remember discussing this with a pastor uh, of ours um, after like a community outreach program. And his comment was, we're losing just as many out the back door as they're coming in the front door. And this is, I think, a classic example of this pendulum swinging of emotionality, but no foundation in knowledge and truth. Horton asks the question, does focusing on revival contribute to our dissatisfaction with God's ordinary blessing on his ordinary means? And Horton says, yes, it does. Is the intense longing for revival itself part of the problem? Fueling the feverish expectation for the next big thing. So doesn't the longing for revival then tend to create the impression that between revivals, you have lulls where the spirit isn't active? Or at least not in the same degree? However, from a New Testament perspective, what happens every day in churches across America and the world is what really matters in terms of repentance and faith. And Horton makes this serious observation. He says it is the longing for revival, the new, exciting, flamboyant, that actually dislodges us from faithful preaching, administration of the sacraments, and mutual accountability for life and doctrine in the communion of saints. Those very things that lead us to maturity in Christ-likeness.
Okay, conversion and covenant, covenantal nurture. So to reinforce this point and the void that revivalism tends to leave uh, and address the disillusionment that revivalism tends to create, Horton wants to discuss in this chapter a long-term example of evangelism. So the Christian life grounded in a radical experience will keep looking for a repeat performance. We will not expect slow growth in the same direction, but radical spikes in the graph of our Christian growth. This keeps us always on the prowl for the next big thing. Evangelism is not something reserved for unbelievers. We invite to a special service. It is the weekly mission to the saved and the lost alike. An example Horton uses is the children in the church. He stresses that our children of believers are part of the covenant community and are holy, set apart by God's promise. References Acts 2.39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He also references the passage that's talking about where there's only one saved spouse in a household. What's the status of their children? He says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy because one of the parents is a believer. Now, to not carry this too far, we, Horton does identify that Esau is a perfect example of rejecting this birthright. And points out that some children in the covenant community will reject this birthright. But that shouldn't cause us to abandon the work of long-term evangelism. Horton's point is that children in a believing household have a birthright within the covenant community. And responding to God's promise, parents, and indeed the entire church, vow to raise these children in the covenant. Therefore, evangelism is for everyone all the time, not just for special services. Evangelism requires preaching, baptism, and instruction in everything Christ taught and commanded. This does not happen through extraordinary ministries, but through the church's ordinary ministry. Horton points out the reformers actually saw conversion as a lifelong process of growing and deepening repentance and faith in Christ. Repentance and faith are not a one-time experience, but part of a lifelong process. And the most important thing to keep our eye on is not religious experience itself, but the faithful ministry of God's means of grace. So finally, we want to look at what types of mindsets might we, and modes of thinking, might we be bringing into the church? And here's a common question I'm probably is asked hundreds of thousands of times every Sunday. How was church today? However, in most times and places of the church, this would have been an unlikely question. In fact, the hearer might have actually been confused. 
In times past, that question would have been akin to asking a farmer how his crops did or uh, how the family meals had been last week. Our ancestors, being a little quizzical about the question, might have responded, well, the Spirit really convicted me during the service, or I really gained an insight into that passage from John. So it doesn't mean that what happens at church through these ordinary means in the ordinary services of ordinary churches on ordinary weeks is itself ordinary. But in fact, what happens is quite extraordinary. God shows up. He judges and justifies. He draws sinners, gathers in his sheep to his son by his word and spirit. He unites them to Christ. He bathes them, feeds them, teaches, and tends them along their pilgrim way. It is through this divinely ordained event that the powers of the age to come penetrate into the darkest crevices of this passing evil age. Hebrews 6. And finally, as part of a congregation, nothing is more sanctifying than another person in our life. They are good at holding up mirrors when we had quite different images of ourselves. There are many that do not set aside the Lord's Day at all and fill the day with something other than the means of grace and fellowship of the saints and then blame the church for its failure to feed them. If they're not attending, what they're missing is God's ordained, ordinary means of grace, of preaching the sacraments, exhorting each other, encouraging each other, lifting each other up, extending love and mercy. Horton points out that uh, he frequently has encountered regularly uh, professing Christians who lament their church situation but did not rank a solid church at the top of their list when considering their move to a new city. And this really struck home for me and Linda. We had quite a few people come up and say, okay, how did you find this little church? And I will tell you that when we knew we were moving here, we started searching through churches that uh, via their websites, since that's all we had, I could identify with their theological perspective. And when I narrow that down to a few, there was one that had all of these resources that I had become aware of, of Renewing Your Mind, Grace to You, White Horse Inn, Cambridge Confession, on and on and on. And I told Linda, I said, wow, this has got to be a church that's really interested in teaching and the growth of its members. So when people ask, how did you find us? I tried to lamely say, well, we looked through the websites and stuff, but we were moved because this was the only one that I found that was just brightly with neon lights saying, okay, here's, where we, here's how to study. Here's what we study. Here's where you can come and study. And it was a blessing. <clears throat> so Jesus Christ instituted the means of grace in clear and unmistakable terms, preaching, baptizing, and discipling. And that discipling is teaching people to observe everything he commanded. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Colossians 3.16. So, in summary, and that is the last part of chapter 4, the fast-paced world we live in has a tendency to condition us to anticipate and even expect change. We may even have a tendency to become frustrated or disillusioned when we do not realize that change. And however, we need to remind ourselves that there are some things, such as the gospel, the word of God, and the ordinary means of grace, that are unchanging. Horton points out that the search for the extraordinary actually undermines our recognition of the excellence that surrounds us via God's ordinary means of grace. Prayer, preaching of the word, baptism, sacraments, just a communal interaction with each other, lifting each other up. And the passion for perpetual breakthroughs actually makes us passive to the growth and maturity occurring around us daily. So I'd like to close with Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we have a few minutes for questions. If anyone has any, I will try my best to field them. No? No one? all they've known. And the problem, like I said in the beginning, the problem is, is that uh, there's no precedent. So we don't know <laughs> what kind of pitfalls this is going to create, what kind of problems it's going to create. And I think we see a lot of it with uh, uh, the phenomena of teenage suicide is unbelievable. You know, I mean, that was unheard of when I was a kid. You know, and, and today it's just common. And I have to think that that disillusionment is part of what's going on as far as this, uh, this uh, mindset of, of Gee, did I, I'm not keeping up. I'm not doing good enough. I, you know, or, or whatever it is, but it's it's intense. Let me see. Anything? Anyone else? Yes.
Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, he's right on. Yeah, and, and that's why I tried to preface it that, that he was using the, the children as an example of long-term evangelism. Um, I would say that I've always had like the, uh, the notion that how we live our lives should be a brilliant enough testimony to our unsaved neighbors that at times of difficulty or trial in their lives, they might be drawn to us to, to see how it is that we have this peace and that they obviously are going to be longing for. And uh, rather than the bullhorns and and everything else around the community trying to pull people in and browbeat them and stuff. So, and I think that's to some degree what Horton is getting at. As we mature in the church, I believe that we'll be a, a brighter light on the hill in the community. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons it's so hard for young people anymore is because of the huge history that the church has for all of these uh, new things that it's tried and, you know, and new ideas. And it's just like, oh, well, it's, you know, you guys haven't accomplished anything, you know. And, and but you, I saw your hand. No hope. That's when they say yeah. it's done. Yeah. There's no future after it. And, and uh, I have to tell you that uh, moving here, I, it, I have been shocked 
at how overt and frequently in your face um, the Christianity of people you're encountering is evident. I mean, walking into a restaurant and you'll see Bible verses posted and you're in large metropolitan cities like Los Angeles, New York, that is just like, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. The newspaper has scripture verses. Then you have open discussion of uh, church-related matters or perspectives on issues in the world. You'd never see that. in You just don't see it. And uh, so... Actually, it's a blessing here, but it's, we need to recognize it's, it's a veritable desert when you get to some of the large uh, metropolitan cities around the country. It does not happen. You don't get that openly profession of faith uh, by people. And actually, as a management person, where I came from, you have sensitivity training and harassment classes that tell you people can't do that. So you can't have something on your cubicle. And you better be careful what you say because religious harassment is a reality. And uh, so it, it's, it's really different here. I, it's a blessing, but it is really, really different here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time of study. We ask always, Father, that you just give us discernment and you give us wisdom and, and you just open our eyes to the opportunities around us to uh, convey your message in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.